고민해 고민을 거듭하는 것이 다. 
Austin. This doesn't broadcast your voice back out. It's just coming out of my iPad, I guess. I'm, I'm surprised I got this working. I'm a total Luddite. <laughs> total Luddite. I, I've never been on a computer. Really? Yeah, an iPad and an iPhone. People, well, those are computers, and it's like that's a lot different than a laptop or something. Yeah. For me, my life is just on my phone. That's pretty crazy, huh? It is. It is. And then you've got AI coming up now, which I do want to talk to you about a little bit, about how AI now is incorporating into uh, into visual media and how that might change the landscape moving forward. But again, we'll get to that in a second. Um, All right. Well, what town are you in? So I'm just in a small town outside of London called St. Albans. St. Albans? Yeah. It's, um, it's I've, no, it's, I've heard of it. You've heard of it? Yeah. Well, you, I believe so. <laughs> I mean, it's one of those towns that no one knows. So whenever really? I, well, yeah. Maybe, maybe I'm kind of a church. <laughs> it well, sounds familiar. It has got a cathedral, yeah. So my uh, twelve times removed great grandfather was from England. Have, did you ever come over and like do any filming over never here? Never yet. No. Nope. Is, you know what? I never listened to any British punk bands. Really? Not one of them. <laughs> just wasn't interested. Just thought it was just yeah. I was in the middle of hardcore, and it's like that's punk rock. That's punk rock. Yeah. I don't care what else you're calling it. You know, people call Blondie and the Talking Heads punk, and it's like, what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> you know? But no, I never, I hardly listen to any East Coast stuff or anything. I was right in the middle of all this stuff, you know? And was that because you were just so blinkered to what it is that you, you were just so submerged by it? It was like, well, I don't need any more of that in my life. Maybe so. Yeah, to a degree. Yeah. It's like, you know, this stuff was amazing. You know, it was really, really great. And, uh, you know, I was right in the middle of it. So we're gonna we're gonna talk about like your incorporation in, in in the hardcore scene and how you got like legendary photos of bands such as Black Flag, Bad Brain, Circle Jerks, Kennedy's, Social Distortion. I mean, I, I can keep yeah. going on and on, but you must have done thousands of interviews and uh, of the, on the work that you've done. Do you take a step back and go, fucking hell? Like I witnessed some of the best shows, some of the most crazy conversations, and no one else had that privilege. Like it's a unique. Not position. many. Well, in uh, in in the late seventies, it was a very small scene. I've said before that you know, like there was about two hundred people who were into punk in L.A., and half of them were the bands. You know, and then it changed real quick. Nineteen eighty three had uh, Black Flag playing to a crowd of three thousand people at the Olympic Auditorium. Stuff crazy. So when you look back on that and you you think about those like hundreds of people who, as you said, most of them might have been part of the bands to how how hardcore has been viewed now with the history books and looking back on it and how it still has such a place within music is it strange like do do you understand why it got big and and why people from all over the world listen to well, that style of music yeah it was truly amazing music and it was uh kind of innovative and you know and, and powerful which i was drawn to it was good you know and so it took a long, a long time for people to realize that but it was amazing stuff being done and it was mostly pretty much underground. Before we start talking about music and, and, and the photography, I'm kind of interested to know a little bit about your upbringing because when I was researching you, you you, uh, you grew up in a small town, I think it's called San Dimas? Yeah, I lived at a ranger station in San Dimas Canyon for when I was a little kid. And it's well documented that your father was a park ranger and a very respectable one, went to the White House, has a mountain named after yeah. them. Yeah. Were you an outdoorsy kid then? I mean, was that kind of thrusted down yeah. you? Like, you need to get outside, get outside. No, no, I loved it. I in, in summertime, when I was out of school, I'd go to work with my dad all the time. 
you know, I was fun. I love being up there and at the uh, installation where he worked, this experimental forest called Tanbark that uh, it was built by the Civil Conservation Corps back in the Depression and stuff. And like there was the same red spreads on the beds and stuff. It was amazing. And, you know, I've collected antiques since I was a teenager and I like old stuff. And these buildings were just amazing. You know, they were occasionally used and stuff, you know, and then we'd go hike down into canyons where they had these little dams and flumes to you know, gauge the water flow and stuff. And those were so amazing. They were kind of real desolate and nobody went to them. And you'd kick a bunch of cobwebs out of the way, opening the doors on them and stuff. It was really fun. I got a rattlesnake one time. He wasn't too happy with me. (laughs) Did it it bite you? No, I didn't let it. (laughs) So what's the art of like catching a rattlesnake then? Is it literally grab it by his head and just pray? Yeah, kind of. Yeah, I pinned him down and picked him up. And then my dad came back from reading the rain gauge and uh, he said, oh, good. And I go, that's alive. And he goes, kill it. And I was like, no, okay. I am so opposed to anything being killed. Like nature is just being totally wiped out. We're living through seeing the extinctions of multiple species constantly. And it's just it's so fucking sad. It's unbelievable. So is that something that you kind of grew up, taught to you growing up was like how pressure nature was and don't take it for granted? Because I think now, as you said, with the environmental catastrophe that's going on, I think we may have took nature for granted and, and it's now biting us in the ass. Was that something even yeah. back when when you were younger that your father would say to you, like, nature's precious, look after it? Yeah, you know, we'd pick up trash that morons would leave out in the woods and carry it out and things like that. And, you know, in Los Angeles at that time, there was smog. They were doing acid rain studies and things like that. But, you know, it was all there and it always been there. And, you know, there's there's something I forgot what number it was. It was something like they counted like something like 13 million trees that have died in California. And it's like, hey, fuckheads, those are making oxygen, you know. You need to take care of them. So is that where you still live now in that area? Because obviously with L.A., it's probably one of the most polluted cities. And, you think? and I think it's one of the, yeah, still, because obviously everyone just drives everywhere. You don't have like public yeah. transport system, like trains, or you do have a train, but no one gives a fuck about it. We had a public transportation that worked real well, and they tore it out. The trolley cars? Yes. Yeah. And they- they took them and dumped them in the ocean to make fish sanctuaries out of them. The oil company saw to that. Instead of city planning, I call it shitty planning. <laughs> so regarding music, I understand you grew up listening to quite psychedelic music. Was that on the back of like the hippie movement in the 60s? Yeah, I always liked underground music and I liked heavy psychedelic music. I had a lot of feedback and things like that. And I saw a lot of the bands in the 60s. You know, I started going to uh, shows in the mid-60s. I saw the Mothers of Invention when Freakout was released. And I saw T-Rex at the Whiskey and the Kinks at the Whiskey, stuff like that. And was that encouraged in, in, in the house? Were, was, was your family like go out, experience music, or was music not really a thing in the house? No. They would listen to swing music that my father grew up with in the war era and everything. And they would, they would listen to swing music. He had some old 78 records and stuff, but they weren't, that, you know, my mother always encouraged my artistic endeavors and my father was clueless about it, never understood it. And we couldn't relate on it, kind of. And it was like, I always uh, had this thing. It's like, when I grow up, I want to do something in the arts. You know, all I cared about was art. And I, I was drawing and doing woodworking and winning awards in high school. And it was like, I just headed that way. 
never pushing it or conscious about it. It's like, this is where I want to go. And I just kept going that way and it ended up working. And did you, your father get the opportunity to actually see the fruits of, of your labor? And, and did you get that moment uh, to go, look at this? I've done something with, with art. No, not really. No. You know what's funny that one time, do you know my backward gun photo? Yes, yep, yep, yep. I shot that for Black Flag when I was doing the Damage album, and they didn't use it, and then I gave it to Channel 3, but in this magazine, uh, I think it was Music Connection, they put in there, Ed Culver's last shot in 1981 or something like that. And this idiot guy called my parents' house. That was when I was still living there before I got my studio, and they go, what? Did he kill himself? And my parents are like, what? What are you talking about? What's this picture? What? <laughs> it was pretty fun. <laughs> <laughs> I'm always interested when like, any parent kind of hears hardcore or punk music for the first time, especially if it's not something they're, they're involved in. Did they understand why you liked it? Like, Could they understand it? Or did they just hear noise, as a lot of parents will say, it's just noise? Yeah, usually they're pretty outraged, I guess. Yeah. You know, nowadays we got what third generation punks kids, you know. <laughs> just, just pretty amazing. Straight away ruining their children's earphones e- eardrums by just putting cans on them and turning it off and going, listen to this. You know, I grew up in the sixties and I like I was listening to like uh thirteen floor elevators and the Velvet Underground and you know the pretty things at all? Yep, yep, yep. Uh love them i bought their records when they were released and stuff they're amazing i used to tell my high school friends this is what the rolling stones wanted to sound like and you know i was listening to that kind of stuff and i had long hair in high school and uh, I used to always wear long sleeve shirts and I'd make uh, like a, a tie out of some weird fabric. I'd make the ties and wear them to school and stuff. And I didn't get along with anybody hardly at all. And, you know, the jocks and the socials hated me. All I cared about was woodworking and art and stuff. And the vice principal was always hassling about having long hair. And the reason I ended up mentioning this, I, I had really long hair and I cut it off in like 1971 or something. You know, the punks are always railing against the hippies. And those aren't hippies. Those are long-haired rednecks you're talking about. The hippies are gone. That was over. You know, there's you know, there's people still, flower children or whatever. But the hippie scene that was actually really, you know, socially and ecologically and politically conscious anti-war, you know, some of the, like the Weather Underground and stuff, you know, the punks are always spouting anarchy. The Weather Underground was going out and doing stuff. Yeah. You know, and people kind of badmouth the, the hippies. And it's like, no, they started stuff like veganism and made hybrid pot, you know, all, all kinds of stuff, you know. And uh, when the punks rail against the hippies, I always think, hey, you're wrong. You're talking about the wrong type of person, you know. I, I suppose what, what the way that I've read it is that it was the false promise that the hippies would were kind of shoving down people's throats. And then the punks were like, well, that didn't fucking work. So fuck you, everything's shit, we're going <laughs> to we're gonna blame the hippies and just, if we see one, knock them around the head. I mean, that, that's how yeah. I think how the history books have... Yeah. Well, that's an interesting concept. That kind of makes some sense, but I always just think they see somebody with long hair and they immediately like, hippie! And it's like, no, you know, they're gone. Hippies, they-
So, so what made you pick up a camera instead of a guitar then? Uh, I was never interested in playing guitar. I almost bought a drum kit from a friend of mine from high school in like 1966 or 67. I'm glad I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> were you, were you, did you have rhythm? Like, could you, could you keep a beat on the, on the drum kit? Oh, sort of. I didn't play it much. Not, partic- not particularly. You're quite well known as being a, a self-taught student, even though you did go to a couple of classes. What were the some of like your homework? Yeah, I, I research, man. I research. So, so what are some of the hard lessons that you had to learn self self teaching yourself? Because I'm sure I think anyone who's self taught in anything, you learn from the mistakes that you've done and then try not to follow it, not try try not to do it again. I mean, yeah, what what were was, the mistakes it, you were doing? It, well, it was totally like if I screwed up something, it was like oh, I'm not going to do that again. You know, it's just like if you make a mistake. I, I remember. Like it happened twice. I was shooting the band in my studio with a medium format camera. And once I got to 10 frames that it kept going and I was like, oh, well, what? And I didn't have film in it. And I did that twice. And I know like the pictures were like they were happening, too. It was like working really good. And I go, oh, let's do another roll. And I loaded another one in and it was like, damn, how did that happen? I don't know. Screwing up, you just learn from it and just not go back there. You were in your mid twenties when, like, the punk scene started kicking off in New York with Iggy Pop, Richard Hell, the Ramones yeah. before it crossed the UK. But do you remember hearing the first kind of punk song, and what was it about the genre that kind of pricked your interest? Because I'm, I'm interested, like, how someone goes from psychedelic to all, all of a sudden the stripped back kind of just sound. Well, it spoke to me. You know, I, I can't recall the first stuff I heard. Might have been California Uberalis or something by the Kennedys. or something i'm not sure i can't pinpoint it i don't even remember the first punk band i saw <laughs> i don't listen to aggressive stuff anymore at all i haven't listened to punk music in years so what are you listening to now 60 psychedelic stuff <laughs> you've gone back to your childhood yeah i, I you know there there's like ten thousand bands that put out amazing singles in the 60s and it's amazing stuff you yeah. know and i'm finding stuff all the time i have always had a deep interest in avant-garde classical music and i listened to that too i was exposed to that in the late 60s there's kind of turning points when i heard that music my life took a left turn kind of or right turn or whatever like it did when the punk scene showed up and it was kind of like whoa you know and i'm down the rabbit hole with that do you you find it still crazy that you, you can still be inspired by music that may have been written 100, 200 years ago with classical music. Well, as far as like stuff like classical music, I like the avant-garde stuff, the, the older stuff. Like my interest starts in the late 1800s 
with music like Eric Satie and stuff like that. You know Eric Satie's music? Not a clue. I used to listen to that after I'd come home from punk shows. <laughs> fall asleep in my big rocking chair, take my boots off, and I'd fall asleep a lot of times. How does a guy enjoying listening to music end up becoming a photographer who had a front row seat to the rise of hardcore punk? I mean, do you remember watching bands like Circle Jerk, Fear, TSOL, and thinking, I, I need to get involved in this. Like, I, I need to be involved in this somehow. If not on stage, I need to get in there with my photography. I didn't think about it that way. I started shooting photographs at punk shows and in Skid Row at night afterwards. I'd drive through Skid Row and shoot photos and stuff. And that's the first stuff I started photographing. And I was going to those shows like all the time, starting in late 78 and like in 79 is when I, you know, started getting some good pictures probably. And, you know, I knew all those people. I'd see them multiple days a week. And it was just like I was part of the thing, you know, seeing I was there all the time. People knew me, you know, and like I'd be waiting out in line and somebody go, what are you doing? Get in here. The first band's on and, you know, zoom me in and things like that. And in the early days, there was no, uh, you know, photo passes or backstage passes. And it was just everybody hanging out in some small clubs and stuff. And, you know, those people, you know, like the whiskey, they'd have backstages and stuff like that. But I was always around there all the time. I think with a lot of music genres, it's, it's getting that in and, and then starting making that networking and talking to the bands. How did you end up instigating that? I didn't even think about it, networking. Yeah. When I heard that word, I was like, oh, no, shoot, I wasn't doing that. You know, in a way, you know, it's like um, I was just there. I knew those people, you know, and I shot some pictures of uh, the Circle Jerks at the Whiskey and they saw them and liked them. I used to make prints and I'd bring them back with me and show my friends and stuff what I'd shot. Then the Circle Jerks asked me to do their uh, group sex cover and I shot that and then it came out good and kind of snowballed from there. You know, a lot of bands, they, they knew me, you know, if they wanted photos, they didn't look in the phone book. I was there and they liked what I was doing. You know, that's kind of how it all evolved. It was just, I was constantly there. They, you know, if I used to go to a show or something in the eighties or something, I'd always come home with a job. You know, somebody go, oh, hey, we need pictures and stuff. And it was like crazy. Every time I'd go out, you know, people would hit me up for work and stuff. And how how important was that kind of building up the this guy's all right kind of attitude? Because I've read in interviews where actually you, you, you really get, do get in the faces of, of, of the, the people you're photography uh, taking the pictures of. So like HR for Bad Brains and, and Henry Rollins, for instance, are two people who you've taken lots of pictures of on stage and you're getting right up to their face so there must be an element of trust that when they move you're going to move because otherwise you're going to smash into them and, and maybe damage the mic or, or whatever i used to be on stage a lot and i never banged into anybody i didn't unplug anybody's guitar you know i was totally conscious of where i was and that was their stage and i was lucky to be there and i was always conscious of it and respectful of that and, you know and those people knew me they they wanted me there you know, my most well-known photograph that wasted use flip photograph is like the fact that it's so good is I was on stage at that moment. And I've been in the crowd and see all the lights in the band, it would be nothing compared to what it is now. Why your photos are so idolized is because you were allowed on stage. Do you think that's missing now with within the music scene whereabouts? It is a lot of barriers now. It is very much band the crowd, and then there's a pit for for, for There's so many pictures being taken of them every millisecond documented, even if it's not a video almost. It's just kind of crazy. 
there's a video called uh, Black Flag Reunion 1983 and at, at the Olympic Auditorium. I'm the only person between the ba- barricade and the stage. And there's a crowd of 3,000 people. There's no evidence of anybody else taking pictures. Nobody. There might have been some other photographer. You don't see them anywhere, though. But it's kind of amazing nowadays that the crowd of photographers. It's crazy. I mean, one of the reasons why there probably wouldn't been that many photographers, because in the 70s and 80s in L.A., it was known as like being quite a, a violent scene. I mean, how did you navigate that yourself within the pit to make sure you don't get clocked or your camera gets smashed? You know, people had some deference to me because they knew I was there. They knew me. You know, if they started coming to punk shows, I was already there. And, uh, you know, that they would, some people would look out for me. And yeah, one time I had a guy jump off stage and he drug his boot across my forehead, kind of, you know, and I had my camera broken off. I mean, my uh, little flash off, my rinky dink camera broken off. And I had it actually, I taped it on from one side of the camera up over the uh, flash and back down to the other side of the camera. And I remember I was shooting at the whiskey with it, then kind of hardly staying on and stuff. And I changed the, the film with that tape in the pit. I took that chunk apart and loaded another roll of film and taped it back on and worked. And I, I shot another roll. <laughs> I don't remember what show it was at, but that's pretty funny. I managed to do that. What I'm trying to get across is like your height and awareness of being on stage in the pit must have just been phenomenal with like cat-like reflexes of having to know, like just, yeah, like you said, like don't trip over mics. Don't don't no. knock into the the, the, the the jock at the back with the strap-on boots because uh, you might see his aggression. Like you must have just had to be on constantly at those shows to be aware of yeah. taking well, the pictures. What was in funny end. about him was I was always ready to take a picture, so I had my camera up to my face and I was watched those shows through a keyhole because I, you know, I didn't have much of peripheral hmm. in a sense, and I was just focused on what I was shooting and what I was doing to do. My friend uh, Shane Elnhorn, he said something on one of my posts recently. He goes, I remember you back in the day and you were the most focused person in the room. So your black and white photos, uh, I mean, as I said before, have become I- iconic and synonymous with the, the, the scene. How did you develop that kind of distinct style? And, and, and why do you think it has last, well, lasted until now? People are still talking about it. Well, all, all those people were kids when I photographed them. So it's all a big part of their history. You know, they were all kids back then. I was, you know, six, seven, eight years older than most of them, or even 10 years older than a lot of them at that time. But I didn't feel any ageism. And, you know, I was part of it. I was there all the time. So, oh, let's see. I kind of mentioned earlier, I had lifelong training in uh, applied art. And that, you know, I understand composition. You know, I don't think a lot of photographers have art classes. They don't understand composition. They learn how to take a picture and start shooting and usually it's point and shoot it has no dynamics or composition or anything to it and i had that background and so i you know like i've said before like maybe i was getting knocked sideways in a pit and i was still trying to frame a photo not take a photo all the live photos that i shot were with a a, just a canon ae1 camera which you know i always wanted a nikon and never got one and a little tiny hot shoe battery operated flash and the fact that that flash was so wimpy, oh, and I always shot with a 50 millimeter lens, like those pictures of Henry and HR, I'm three, four, you know, three feet away from them. You know, it's like that lens doesn't distort. You have to focus it too. I had no autofocus, no telephoto lens and stuff. I saw a clown at an Iggy show shooting a 
the show, he was on the stairway with a drink on the counter and it had about a three foot lens. He was probably taking pictures of his nose hairs from the back of the room having a drink. And it was like, oh my God, what the hell? So that lens is a big part of my work that people use wide angle lens, fisheye lens. You know, you use the fisheye lens, you don't have to focus. Everything's in focus, you know, but, uh, you know, mine was all manual focus. That, that wasted youth flip photo, that guy ran diagonally across the streets, boom, boom boom and he's in the air and it's like boom you know and, and it's perfectly in focus you know and that's kind of a trick so so how much is it being at the right place at the right time and how much is it i'm just so good at my job i know like where where the performer's going to be or i know where the guitar is going to be or is it kind of just blind luck that you do just get the photo i knew the songs i knew the dynamic spots in them and stuff i used to shoot to the rhythm of the music and also i was mentioning i used that wimpy little flash and i was close up and that helps underexpose the background which give my, my photos a kind of a clean look without a lot of crap in the background and it really focuses no pun intended on the subject matter you know from farther away and big flashes you get all the amps and junk in the background and stuff and I just only thought about that really recently. It was the fact I was so close that I had that wimpy flash that my pictures look the way they do. So you, you're known for your work on the West Coast. What, was there any bands who were trying to get you to come over to the East Coast? So I'm thinking like Cro-Mags, Agro Front. Were they trying to get you to capture what was happening in, in the New York scene because they knew of the work that you were doing over in the West Coast? Nope, nobody ever asked me to come to New York. <laughs> Would you, if they asked? Uh, I don't know, maybe. Not now. I stopped shooting live photos in the beginning of 1984. And what was the reason for stop doing live shows? Was it you just done, like you didn't want to do it anymore? No real offense to them, but I wasn't into thrash. And the, there was a lot of that going on. And I just, and uh, I was already, you know, making money off of photography. And I wanted to progress as a photographer. I said it a couple of days ago. There's way, way more to photography than shooting live punk shows. And um, I got a studio, started shooting studio photography and portrait stuff and not headshots, you know, and location photography and got a lot of equipment and medium format camera. I was using a four by five camera later. And, you know, that stuff's the antithesis of like shooting live stuff with a 35 millimeter camera to think i did a good job in every format and every style of photography i did you know people like it they see it but i'm known for my punk stuff so that's kind of interesting then so what point did people start recognizing your work away from punk and hardcore well i started working for uh record companies that actually paid me you know i didn't get ripped off by all of them but a lot of you know punk stuff was pretty shady and uh you know their checks didn't bounce and and I started shooting uh, recording studios in uh, 84. I shot the first one. I shot Herbie Hancock in his studio and stuff. And I ended up shooting recording studios for 25 years, probably or more, four by five architectural photographs. And I shot engineers and producers and microphones and all kinds of stuff. Was there any challenging moments of trying to change transition between the styles and the personalities of the people you've been hanging around with like in the punk and hardcore scene where about you're now working with other artists who who may have a different mindset of how a photographer should be so not so much mm -hmm. up in their space i mean was that a difficult transition uh, it wasn't any problem for me i was just branching out and you know doing different stuff and people always liked what i did you know mm. that art training is what helped just so people listening so they're aware of some of the 
the, the non-live uh, photos that you've taken. So Circle Jerks Group Sex, Black Flags Damage, TLSOL, Self-Titled, Bad Religion, How Could Hell Be Any Worse, Social do- social Distortions, uh, Mummy's Little Monster. I mean, that for anyone, I think, would be like, holy shit, that's a lot. But you've, you, you've done so many photo shoots with some iconic punk bands whereabouts people might not know who you are how, how difficult is it to, to live in a world whereabouts people see your photos all the time but trying to get credit for that photo can be quite difficult especially now in the digital age where things are circulated so easily without any creditation a lot of people know my photos they don't know i took them and how does that sit uh, with you it's aggravating but there's nothing i can do about it other than just ask for credit when i see it you know I've had a, you know, I kind of have a posse, which is really cool, helping out and say, hey, that's one of that photos, give it credit. And was that something you were thinking about at the time? Like, I, I need to get, I don't know, like, were any contracts signed with this sort of stuff? Or was it just not in your, your, your mind no, space? Yeah. No, it wasn't important then. You know, it was to me and the bands and stuff, but nobody gave a damn. Mm. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't gonna, you know, even looking back, it didn't seem like it was ever going to be the history it is. It's rather shocking what's happened. I didn't foresee it. Do you think it's difficult now in the world of social media for any photographer, really, to make any form of living? Because people will just steal it or clipping and copy and paste and put it out and maybe even pretend it's their own. Yeah, that depends on whether you're paid for the job and got paid for it up front and then maybe it's online and gets circulated. But uh, nowadays it's like, I took a picture, therefore I'm a photographer. I always kind of strive not to call myself an artist or a photographer. I take pictures and I make things and that's all I've ever said about it. I've been doing photography. I don't do it much anymore, but I've been doing photography for 44 years. I never had a published phone number. I never ask anyone for work. I never ran an ad, and I use funeral sympathy cards with my information on them for business cards. I have one in my pocket. <laughs> That's amazing. And they come in a little envelope. Why funeral cards? Uh, it's just—it's a funny thing. I, I always thought, well, they're the right size. They're cool. I always like uh, kind of things about death and destruction, not Halloween <laughs> or Day of the Dead crap. But uh, it's it's just totally funny. You know, it's unique. And I always used to think, like, I don't want to work with anybody that doesn't have a sense of humor. And if they don't see any sense of humor in this, it's like, good, throw it away, please. It's business card that weeds out jerks. So some of your photos that you've taken, some of the, in my opinion, some of the greatest photos you're taking was actually away from the bands. And and as you said, like the, the scenery. So there's a famous photo that you took of like the riot at the whiskey where that's the police are just outside the venue and they're just circulating the venue. Why did I have you a lot of the, nobody's seen? Why did you feel that you that that was important to take? Like, were you aware of like this shit is happening? So therefore I want to document it all the time. And, and why haven't you released some of the photos that, you, that you've got? Because I'm sure loads of people be so interested in seeing them. They're not scanned yet. See, I've been kind of working with my old photos for the last 
probably 12 years or so, almost about the time I basically quit doing photography. I still do occasionally for friends' bands and stuff like that, but I don't pursue it. And, uh, you know, the interest in punk was on the rise, and I was like, hey, I got to break this stuff out. And what's interesting about it is, like, I'm finding amazing stuff. And people think I did a lot of punk photos. They have seen nothing yet. They're going to flip out when they see what I've done. You know, it's crazy. I, all these little bands that nobody's even heard of, I paid attention to everybody, not just the punk rock stars or whatever. I have thousands of pictures that nobody even knows I took, let alone the scene. So, and I'm finding great stuff, just amazing things. So I'm currently, I have a publisher and I'm working on a four volume box set of big books of all my old punk stuff. And I'm asking my punk friends to, you know, relate a anecdote or, or something not to write about me. I'm not like, no, don't write some nice little thing about me or anything. I just want them to have some input in my book. We're all kind of our shared history and we're still friends. I see these guys all the time, a lot of them lifelong friends we will start wrapping up now but i'm interested to know there's going to be some aspiring photographers and and they're going to want to know like some of some of your kind of your tips for for anyone who is looking to to do the kind of work that you that you that you did and i'm pretty sure the answer will be music music photography yeah you mean yeah if you're shooting live photographs you should focus on one person or the entire band in my opinion like if you have three out of four people, like that's not band. That's not, that's not like people never get the drummers in the photo. You have to find a strategic place to be able to get a drummer in the photos without the symbols in the way or something like that. And to me, you know, I've got tons of stuff where something moved or somebody ran through and screwed up a picture like that, that people would probably still really like, but I've, I've never published any of those. They don't live up to my standards kind of. And it was always sort of early on. I, I, you know, focus on one musician or the entire band, you know, just randomly shooting at shows. It's just like, well, what's that? You know, somebody posted a picture of uh, the Mau Mau's, the L.A. one, but it had two guys in the band and said, you know, the Mau Mau's. And it's like, that's the Mau's, <laughs> you know, that, that's like half the band. You know, it was Rick and Scott and it's like not the whole band. And I see that in posts all the time, too, that. They show a picture of Henry Rollins, say Black Flag, and it's like, oh, is it a one-man act? It's like, that's Henry Rollins of Black Flag. It's not Black Flag. You know, it's just weird the way I see all this stuff. I'm really working hard to kind of promote, like, if somebody passes away, that you should take a three seconds and say, rest in peace, instead of writing rip. I think that's so annoying. It's rip, 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 you know? And it's like, it's just so disrespectful and lame, I think. It's just like, wow, you can't take a couple of seconds. No, you got to abbreviate it. Yeah, I completely understand where you're coming from. And, and I suppose it's, 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 it's maybe just lazy journalism or, or the way that people now write on social media. Yeah, is, is... TTYL. America, <laughs> land of the free, free to the power of the people in uniform. People are looking back on your in your body of work what what do you hope people take away from 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 the work that you've done what do you hope people look at look and go he he did x like what do you think what do you hope the x is um 
documented that underground scene adequately, I guess. You know, people say that my pictures feel like you're there, and that's because of that lens that I shot with. That's what puts you into the picture. There's no distortion. So my last question is one I ask all my guests, and it's, it's a case of if time and distance isn't an issue, who would you call up to go for a beer or for a, a, a coffee with within the punk and hardcore scene? Who was the person that you could always sit down and just have a chat with? Well, I'm friends with them. We talk a lot, but like Jello Opera is always fun to be around. Well, we're going to wrap up now because I've taken a lot of your time. Thank you so much for doing the work that you did. I know I, I, it must be weird for you to hear a, a British guy talking about like your work like it's one of the greatest things that they've seen. But it really is. For, for me, for someone who can't be at the scene, seeing the photos allows me to at least visualise it and, and, and just imagine what it could have been like. And if it wasn't for people like yourself putting themselves at harm, getting an elbow in the face... Um, we, we wouldn't be able to witness that. So truly, like really some of the work you've done is, is, is phenomenal. And uh, yeah, we people who weren't there are just thankful that, that you were. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, wait to see the rest of the stuff. <laughs> can't wait. I, I truly can't wait. Yeah. yeah, have a fantastic day. Appreciate it. Yeah, no keep in touch, please. Will thank do. you, I appreciate it. Did you waver at the same time? Yes. In, in, in a, oh, that in was a, weird. Wow, well, I did it again. That's weird. <laughs> <laughs> thank in you. Sync. See you later. Bye-bye. <laughs> Thank you to Edward for giving up his time to talk to me. You can find more of Edward's work via the link in the episode description of this podcast. Uh, don't forget, if you're going to 2000 Trees, come hang with me Friday the 7th at 9am. I know it's fucking early. I'd be surprised if I'm there. Um, and yeah, go rate and review. Share this podcast around. We're back. I'm hoping to have some semi-normality to this podcast which is something that hasn't happened with this podcast in a very long time that's it for this uh, this episode if you're going to a punk show and you see someone fall down you pick them right back up again until next time bye bye Rise above, we're gonna rise above